All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Um, we promised you guys interesting guests. I think we're going to deliver today. Uh, James uh, Felton Keith is joining us. He's running for Congress in the 13th District, and you will not be able to put him in a box. Uh, he's, <laughs> he is a unique uh, candidate. Uh, he's running as a Democratic incumbent. Uh, we generally tend to like that here on the program. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, James, uh, great to have you on. Um, Thanks. Yeah. So as, as a matter of background, you got an engineering degree, I believe, from Tuskegee University and then economics degree from Harvard. Uh, you uh, believe in universal basic income. I think you call yourself a progressive, but not a socialist. So already we're having fun. Uh, that's a lot of yeah. different angles. Yeah. So, I'll go. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. So let, let me start with this. Um, why run against a Democratic incumbent? What's driving you? Well, two things, right? So I, I do identify as a progressive without being a socialist. And I do think that a universal basic income is the most moral policy that we can distribute to start to bring people together. I won't say again, but start to bring people together for the first time. Uh, that's number one. Uh, and so I'm running this particular race because I think that this district being the second most blue voting district in the country, that even shocked me when I found it out, has not reaped a lot of benefits for being so blue, so dedicated, so committed to the party over time. Um, and so our campaign slogan is quite frankly, we owe us. And it's really about what we owe ourselves as a district, as a community from, a, from the standpoint of courage. Um, so I'm running because the conversation of 2020s is wildly different than what it has been over the course of the past 50 years. But I'm also running against an incumbent who barely won his primary in 2016 and for all better purposes doesn't represent the district. He's not a progressive. He helped build the Republican arm of the party. He has constantly endorsed the racist policies of his home country, the Dominican Republic, and their denationalization of Haitian citizens and Haitian descendants in the Dominican Republic. He's also funded a whole lot of anti-LGBT uh, candidates around the state at the, um, at the state and municipal level. And again, he just doesn't represent the values of a district that is so blue. We are a progressive district through and through uh, up here in Harlem, Washington Heights, Inwood, and Kingsbridge. Um, so that's why we're- I didn't even get to that part. Uh, so it says in your bio that you're the first uh, black LGBT uh, candidate in the country. Is that true? That seems unbelievable. Well, yeah, so, so I ran an exploratory campaign. We ran a campaign in 2017, 2018 uh, to see what our chances were against the party machine. Because what happened in 2016 when this incumbent got in office is the party sort of split. The old Harlem party split from Adriano's, uh, our, my opponent's win. And we wanted to see, you know, what our real chances were. And I think Forbes at that time ran an article. I did a, an event with Start Out, which is for folks who aren't familiar, is like a startup org for LGBT entrepreneurs. And it was on a Capitol Hill. And I got a bit of press from that. And one of the journalists said, you know, I think you are the first black queer person or black LGBT person I identify as bi to run for federal office, period. Uh, so it's sort of federal office via US Congress. 
And then, you know, two years later, we've got a lot of, you know, brown people running. We have someone running in the 17th and the 15th. Uh, and so I think folks are seeing that it's viable. I don't think that a lot of people thought it would be, especially because Harlem is such a large part of our district and people traditionally think that it's uh, more conservative. But it's not. It's not. It's very diverse. Uh, it's, it's a different Harlem than it was in 1920 or 1960. So, so James, um, what part of your the incumbent, I mean, you said he, I think you said something along the lines of he votes like a Republican. That That's uh, fighting words uh, in a district that blue. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so help me understand how so. What do you think that he votes for Sure. Uh, that is not progressive enough for that district. Well, I'll say this. In Congress, he has definitely towed the line because the pressure is on, because he has a real competitor. And we like that. That's uh, democracy working, uh, for lack of better phrases. But he's been in the state Senate and the state assembly for a long time. And while there, for about 25 years, he helped build a strictly Republican caucusing branch of the New York State Senate called the IDC the independent Democrats. And we ran a large campaign a few years ago to get rid of all of them. There were eight of them and we got rid of everyone except for one seat. And we managed to make New York State blue again. And now the challenge of the state uh, bodies, the assembly and the Senate, is to actually back up all of its progressive talk. But he was a core player in stifling that for over a decade. And that's what I really mean. You know, the lip service that comes out about how he cares about immigration or health care or Green New Deal or you name it is rhetoric. But his actual backings and the folks that he's taking money from and the people that he's interacting with shows that he's available to sell his vote and sell his real strategy to the highest bidder. That's exactly so, what all right. James, you already got my sport on two grass. First of all, if he's IDC, forget it. Totally conservative, <laughs> totally corporate. It's he's, over, right? Got, yeah. yeah. And second of all, you know what I like, James? We get a lot of candidates on here, and and I understand why a lot of them are cautious. Mm. You are calling it out, okay? You're not messing around. You're saying it as you think it and, and yeah. as you think it really is. And I really appreciate that. Thank uh, you. And, and, you know, you've got courage going in, in, in all directions because, you know, in a district that blue, just flat out saying you're not a socialist also takes some degree of courage. And so... To help me understand what you, I, I think there's a big difference between progressive and socialist, but sure. I want to hear your take on it. Well, you know, a few things on that. So I've, I've sort of, I think I'm the only candidate in this cycle or any for that matter to lay out a broader political ideology. We call it inclusionism. And it, you know, for anyone who goes to inclusionism.org or goes to our website and checks out the links there, they'll see where we tell the line between the sort of individual freedoms that libertarians like and the sort of communal support that Democrats like to push, uh, again, from a Democratic standpoint. We're far, far left of anything that would be considered conservative. I think we're left of everyone who would just consider themselves blue in general. But to that point, uh, you know, the majority of my district, for as diverse as it is, is still very black, very old school African-American black. And when I say black, I just mean, you know, Harlem, Detroit, Chicago, New Orleans kind of black folks, right? Uh, southern part of LA, Oakland folks for you, you know, California people. And 
black people are not socialists. Even though you have some who are out there who back it up, and I have a lot of peers that I like who are running as democratic socialists, uh, who I've had up here on my local radio show that I do in Harlem every Sunday. But the difference is we require an equity stake, an ownership stake. I'm not for endorsing, and I know that this is an oversimplification, a government management of the distribution of, say, a, ger a jobs guarantee, for instance. I don't understand how that works. It's nearly impossible. But what I do like is decoupling income from wages specifically and paying people what they're owed. I think when you talk to black people who have no education or a whole lot of education around any of these big cities, what we all want is our just due. And our economic inclusion is a boat of justice. And it has nothing to do with the socialism of the 20th century. I think a lot of people who are using that rhetoric are either young and naive or they're lazy from a creativity standpoint because this era, this generation, has, uh, it's allowing us a whole lot of opportunities that we weren't allowed before to craft new economic and new community thinking around how we go forward. So we're just trying to do the 21st century thing. Um, yeah. And that's the play. All right. Uh, so uh, I, I promise people you'd be interesting. You are. Uh, so uh, what does we owe us mean? We owe us is really it's sort of a, a spiritual call to courage, right? So the majority of my campaign, the crux of my campaign is around ownership. It's around what we're owed. I spent my career as an engineer and an economist, and I write or have advocated for the vast majority of cybersecurity and data policy on the planet, this country, Europe, East Asia, you name it. And my life's work has really been trying to solve one problem. Engineers only want to solve distribution problems if they're actually engineers. And the distribution problem I see that we're failing at is really to how do we distribute value to people? And so what I've been working on for at least the past decade is how to recodify data as an asset class so that I can democratize every productivity structure, every profit structure to give us back our rightful equity stake. And so we owe us is about having the courage to own our own identities and fight for the money, quite frankly, and the inclusion that we're owed from this time. And I think that's the political conversation of the 2020s. It's not one of justice alone. We need a little bit more than justice. A whole lot more. Uh, James Felton Keith, he will not play your game. He'll play his game. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. I mean, look, and I, Andrew Yang endorsed you, but you said you have a different way of, of financing the universal basic income than he does. So a true independent man, I don't mean independent as in politics, yeah. I just mean yeah. someone who speaks his own mind and has his own mind. So uh, James, please give us your website. Uh, everyone can just go to jamesfeltonkeith.com uh, or you can go to weoeus.org to just look at the policy platform. Uh, yeah, everything is right there. If you wanna donate, you can go to votejfk.org and it'll take you, you know, straight to an ActBlue account. But um, yeah, we got a lot of allies for what you mentioned, whether you know they're the Yangs of the world or other folks, but our solution sets are really around equity. It's a very Americana way of including people in the 21st century. At least By the way, to show you how slow I am and how much smarter you are than I am, uh, I finally got that JFK on your hat is James Felton Keith. Oh yeah, they yeah. <laughs> in Harlem, it wasn't it wasn't me. A bunch of activists just start coming together, and you know, a while ago, people 
they just moved away from the James to JFK. I think it was really because, and this is not a joke, they couldn't remember my name. I have three first names, and they just said JFK works. We'll figure out how it works later. So All that's right. what I'm running with. Yeah. Okay. It's not a joke, but it's funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, James slash JFK, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Uh, today we promised you a number of interesting guests and I think we're about to deliver. Uh, Steve Hill's guy I met while running for office, he was running for a state senator seat, but hold on, that's not just the only thing about Steve. Uh, he was, he worked in aerospace, he was a four, he's a Marine. Uh, he uh, then became a real estate appraiser and a comic uh, and, and and he was a correctionals officer for about a decade. So th this is a very interesting guy, no matter how you slice it. But on top of all that, he also suffered discrimination recently uh, that I think is telling in the context of these times. So Steve Hill, welcome to the program. Hey, how you doing? Thank you, Jake. Thank you for yep. uh, allowing me the opportunity to express myself. Absolutely. And and there was nobody uh, who was a bigger character. I mean, you made me look boring, Steve, on the campaign trail. Um, okay, so, right, but but we're going to talk about a serious topic here. Um, uh, you told me a story about uh, how you were doing your job uh, appraising real estate uh, when something unusual happened to you. Unfortunately, in this country, it's not that unusual. So tell us what happened. Basically, in a nutshell, and I'm, I'm going to try to make this brief uh an officer saw me as a neighborhood shooting comparable properties for my appraisal reports i had three properties to do that day his was the first and he he uh, got my license plate and um basically went into his job as a sheriff's officer as a deputy la county deputy and uh tracked me down and I, I really don't really want to find out exactly how he did it because I have a Department of Corrections security clearance, my license plate. But he somehow found his way to my house uh, and questioned me as to why I was in his neighborhood. That's yeah. a short story. Yeah. So at that point, you're a state Senate candidate and, and you got the day job as the real estate appraiser. Um, so do you think it was because you were a black man taking pictures of folks' houses that, that he wound up tracking you down and coming to your house? I can't, I can't say for sure, because as you know, I'm a, I'm a Satanist. One of, one of the only black Satanists in history to ever run for state Senate. I'm a Satanist, and my, right, my license plate read in black and gold, bold, for Satan. So at this point, we're going to have to go to court to find out if it was racial bigotry or racial discrimination or religious bigotry. He's going to answer to one of them because he made his way to my house and questioned me. So I, I don't know, but, you know, that's, that's, that's only a, a small part of the story. Uh, yeah. just, just trying to go in and, and I tried to go in and talk to the captain just to let him know, hey, your officer needs some training. And then I was totally ignored by him. He didn't call me. I went out to a meeting that he was at, sat in the front row. He asked, Any, anyone have a, 
a problem with the sheriffs. I raised my hand and said yes. And from that point on, no one on the civilian oversight committee or the sheriff's department tried to ascertain in any manner what my problem was. I basically stood around with a friend of mine at the end of the meeting, you know, waiting for someone to approach me. No one ever came to me. So that's when I had to file. I said, you know what, I'll just file a lawsuit. So, Steve, when you give your house and you said, hey, I, I'm a real estate appraiser and, and this is part of my job. If I was the cop, I think, oh, OK, I get it now. My bad. I'm, I'm sorry. I understand what you're saying uh, and, and go. So what happened instead? Well, I, I didn't I didn't even like the, the premise of this questioning because this is this is how they kill us. I'm, I'm going to be plain and simple with you. This is how they kill us. The question he proposed to me was, where were you 35, 40 minutes ago? And that was so insulting because he knew where I was. I knew where I was. But a black man, maybe, maybe not as, uh, not with my resume, say someone who hates the cops, that contact could have, turn, you know, it could have went south real quick. But I knew what he was trying to do. And he even told me, because I asked him, did, did someone call the police on me? And he told me no. But then when they did the investigation, the lieutenant questioned me and said, oh, we had several calls about you. In the, and they, they basically cleared themselves quickly. And this was, this was pre-public lynching by George Floyd. This was before that. So they basically cleared themselves. And that's the biggest thing I have with law, with law enforcement. And I know I wore a badge. I was in the Department of Corrections, prisons, two maximum security prisons. You can't let these guys investigate themselves. It's ludicrous. It's insane. You're not going to get justice if they keep investigating themselves. Yeah. So, uh, Steve, you've been part of the protest now um, uh, since the George Floyd uh, killing. Um, obviously, this is an issue that you, you cared about for a long time. Uh, but do you sense a change at all uh, because of these protests, or do you think, no, nope, we're still dealing with the same exact thing here? Uh, do, you, do you have any hope that L.A., for example, is going to make a change, or is it just as bad as it's ever been? Um, you know what? They, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think... I see any change coming, not for the foreseeable future, not until we all basically look alike and they kind of forget that they used to have slaves in this country. But as long as we have darker skin and they have us packed up in these hyper segregated communities known as ghettos, we're, you know, we're going to have discrimination. I mean, I don't really have much hope. You know, I just want to teach my kids what kind of country I want. I want everybody to learn our, our true history. You know, I went to school in the 70s. I didn't, I, don't, I didn't know, you know, they didn't teach us what people are learning now. Thank, thankfully for the internet, where you can, uh, you know, research your own information. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't see anything changing. Yeah, no, I don't remember them teaching us about Juneteenth in school or any of that. <laughs> and Not, Malcolm X. All they thought of Martin Luther King, and they killed him. Yeah. So, uh, Steve, you know, you uh, were saying off air uh, that uh, 
you, when you hear people talking about black on black crime, uh, that that gets you animated. Uh, so t- tell us about that. What, what what are your thoughts on that, and and why do you get so upset when people mention it? I get so upset because it's a disingenuous argument. You know, the the, the whole with, without the knowledge of how we got into these ghettos where we're we are in these hyper segregated communities where there's little upward mobility going on there's there's no economic tax base you know the the blacks have no businesses therefore the schools are going to suffer they have no resources and you know they did this redlining basically after world war ii when the gis came back and they started building all all of these subdivisions and the and this country allowed the banks not to loan if they sold to black people I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. I, I recommend this book to people. I don't know if you can see it, but this is the color of law. It, it tells you how we, how the government made these ghettos, and basically crowded them with people with very little education and very little economic opportunity. This is an economic problem for the most part. But you know, when you see us killing each other, it's be mostly because of hopelessness. My nephew was killed two years ago in St. Louis. Hopelessness. We need education. Yeah, and, and so look, where you live now, uh, the Antelope Valley, which is the nor- northern part of Los Angeles, uh, Palmdale uh, has had similar situations. There's redlining in Palmdale. Uh, oh, and so, so talk to us about what redlining is and what it leads to. Well, what, what redlining is where the banks would would give a preference to areas for for easier lending when it's not people of color in that particular market area. Therefore, therefore you wind up with African-Americans all segregated into, you know, it's basically state-sponsored segregation. It was supposed to stop in 1968, but it's still going on today. I'm a real estate appraiser. I know it's going on today. Yeah. And that then leads to African-Americans being put in only one section of town and hence the term redlining. In the old days, they would literally draw a red line on a map. And, and and not allow African-Americans to buy properties outside of that, not give them mortgages for that, et cetera. And it, it, and it happened as recently as, you know, uh, a couple of decades ago. And, and, you know, some theorize it still happens. Oh, uh, the mortgage meltdown. I was on the front line of that. I was on the front line. Who, who do you think was adversely affected by the mortgage meltdown the most? African-Americans. Right now, we have the lowest home ownership basically in history. And how do you build generational wealth through real estate? So, you know, the yeah. rest of the country has a cold, we have the flu. Yeah, and, and by the way, with coronavirus, that was quite literal. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. Sometimes and, you just can't write this shit. Right. And, uh, and you know, so I, I want people to appreciate what Steve is saying. If, it, if you put folks in a certain area and then you underfund the education, and you overfund the prisons, and you do all the other things that come along with that, and then you turn around after taking away all their resources and say, "Hey, why is there more crime in your area?" It's such a circular logic, and it's exactly the institutional racism 
that uh, keeps African-Americans down in this country. And then on top of that, you kneel on their neck and, and have the situation that happened with George Floyd. So, uh, Steve, you know, I, you got that lawsuit going now. Uh, you got every right to do your job like everybody else does. And whether it's for racial or religious uh, bigotry, uh, they got no right to stop you. So, uh, you know, uh, good luck with the lawsuit. I got I to gotta tell you this. I spoke with uh, Mike Garcia this morning. We had a phone conference. He, he, he wants to try to uh, legally see how he can help me with this. Because I, th I think the, the world needs to know. You, you keep letting these guys investigate themselves, and we're never going to get any justice. Yeah, Mike Garcia is the guy who just won a congressional seat in the 25th district where Steve lives and where I ran. He's a Republican, but if he actually s sticks with his word and, and helps you, well, that would be great. He'd be re representing you as he should. Right. Uh, so let's, let's make sure he lives up to that. Yeah, Christie came out. I invited both of them to come to the rallies that were held here. Christie actually came out. So I give her props for that. Christy Smith is a Democrat in, uh, in the general election in November. She just lost the, uh, the special election, but she's still in the election uh, for November. So that, that, those are your two main players in that district now, Christy Smith and Mike Garcia. Uh, and, and Steve, you know politics, so I, I love that you're putting pressure on both of them to make exactly. sure they represent the community. And I went to independent. I'm an independent now. I left the Democratic Party. So, you know, it's whoever wants to play ball. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there you go. All right, Steve Hill, uh, thank you for joining us on the Young Turks. Appreciate it. Thank you.